We're the Northwest unsung heroes, the backbone of this land. Where there walks a timber faller, we claim there walks a man. The rigging crew and the sawmill boys are always putting us down. But they can't log them and they can't saw them if we don't cut them down. Strong winds and widowmakers, they don't bother us at all. We don't care what the weather's like, if it's winter, spring, or fall. We don't complain if the timber's smaller, if the ground is steep. Hard work don't scare us, we can lay right down beside it and go to sleep. Fire warden said no timber workers boy. make for some Can't of the best environmentalists. That's the message of Steve Beadler, professor of history at the University of Oregon and a guest this week in the Labour Radio Podcast Network. In the conversation that we're going to share with you today, Beadler explains how his initial interest in the spotted owl conflict of the 1990s led to a broader exploration of the lives and fortunes of timber communities, which has resulted in his recently published book, Strong Winds and Widow Makers, Workers, Nature, and Environmental Conflict in Pacific Northwest Timber Country. It's a study that's about far more than the work of chopping down trees, though. In analysing some of the political battles that took place in Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, Pete offers a new analysis of the divisions that existed between workers and environmental activists. Not a choice between preservation and destruction, but rather competing working-class and middle-class understandings of environmentalism. These provocative new findings have the potential to change the way we think about not just timber and forestry, but many other forms of often rural work that share direct relationships with the natural environment. I'm Patrick Dixon, and you're listening to Labour History Today. We don't complain if the timber's smaller, if the ground is steep. Hard work don't scare us, we can lay right down beside it and go to sleep. Welcome to our weekly meeting, Steve. I was wondering if you could just give a sort of brief overview of, of your research and the book to everyone, if you don't mind, please. Of course. Well, thank you, Patrick, for inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity. It is great to, to meet everyone. Um, so yeah, my book, Strong Winds and Widowmakers, Workers, Nature, and Environmental Conflict in Pacific Northwest Timber Country, is about timber workers in the Pacific Northwest. And for the purposes of my book, the Northwest is Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. Um, and it's about the ways in which workers understood their relationship to the environment, and in turn, the way the environment shaped their culture, their social relationships, their politics, and their labor movements. Um, so usually when I'm telling people about the book, I, I tell them how I got interested in this topic. Um, so what most people know, and before I started this project, most of what I knew about timber workers in the Northwest and their relationship to the forest was a product of the spotted owl conflict. So for those of you who don't know, in the late 80s, or you know, definitely someone like Harold from the Northwest is probably going to know about the spotted owl conflict. But uh, for those who maybe don't know, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was this very heated, very tense debate uh, that took place in the in politics, in public hearings, at federal management agencies, 
about the future of the Northwest forests and how much harvest should be allowed. And kind of on one side, you had loggers who the way the media portrayed it is they were desperately trying to hold on to their jobs. They really didn't care about the environment. They didn't care about the ecological ramifications of timber harvesting. They just wanted work. And on the other side, you had environmentalists who, and the reason it's called the spotted all conflict is because they were advocating for more habitat for uh, an ostensibly endangered species called the spotted owl. And what they said was that logging had to be significantly curtailed in order to save the habitats of this owl. And the way workers got portrayed in a lot of the coverage of the spotted owl conflict was that they were completely indifferent to ecological concerns. They were completely indifferent to any sort of conservation or preservation concerns that they didn't have an ecological mindset. So there was kind of this, this narrative of backwards rural working people who, who are too kind of set in the past to realize that the future is changing. And these enlightened, mostly middle-class urban environmentalists who you know, are gonna guide us towards a more enlightened future. And you know, when I started this project or when I started kind of thinking about the history of timber workers, that's what I believe too. I grew up far away from timber country. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, and I was kind of in high school right when the Spotted Owl conflict was ending. Um, and so most of what I knew, at least initially, was framed by journalists who had covered the Spotted Owl conflict. Um, and when I eventually came out to the Northwest for graduate school and started working on this project, that was more or less the narrative I was going to tell, was that you know loggers essentially abandoned any sort of radicalism that they had had in the early 20th century and pivot towards kind of the right as well as pivot towards a kind of anti-environmentalism um but my thinking changed in probably some of the most unacademic uh scenarios you can imagine so one of the reasons i came to graduate school in the northwest and i love still being able to work in the northwest um is that i fish and hunt and if you fish and hunt in the Northwest, you run into a lot of loggers, a lot of retired loggers, active loggers, or sawmill workers. Um, you know, you run into these guys on the riverside, you start having conversations with them. And what those conversations revealed to me was that what I thought I knew about loggers and their relationship to the environment was completely misguided. Um, so after enough of those conversations, I went back to the archives and started looking for looking at the environmental history of work in the Northwest timber industry. And what I found just absolutely amazed me that the story that journalists told about the Spotted Owl and that I myself believed about the Spotted Owl conflict really didn't hold up to historical scrutiny. So my book covers roughly a hundred years, it starts in 1900, ends in the present, and it examines the different ways in which workers came to know nature and how they ultimately came to advocate for it. Um, one of the big kind of things that I found and was really excited to discover is that, so one of the kind of golden eras of conservation and wilderness preservation in American environmental history was in the mid 20th century. Uh, 1964, you get the Wilderness Act signed by Johnson. Before that, you had a lot of new wilderness designations. There's a real expansion of wilderness. And what I found was that the International Woodworkers of America, the IWA, which is the union central to my story, was really important part of those political efforts and that they had these really strong relationships with the Wilderness Society and the Sierra Club groups that, you know, 
are usually imagined as you know, antithetical to, to labor. Um, so one of the things I uncovered was a working partnership between labor and environmentalists. Um, and part of the story I tell is how that relationship ultimately dissolved and we ended up with the spotted owl conflict. But the, really the point of my book is to suggest that we can't read the spotted owl conflict backwards in time, that we have to understand this as a particular moment in the longer history of timber workers. And when we look at that longer history, what we see are people who, communities who have taken seriously their, their impact on nature and have also taken seriously their obligation to nature. Um, so, you know, usually when I sum it up for people, what I say is my book argues that timber workers are environmentalists. Now, not environmentalists of the sort who, you know, in the 1990s would, would join the Sierra Club and probably who worked in cities like Seattle and Portland, they, they had a working class environmentalism. And the book details some of the ways that working class environmentalism and middle class environmentalism differed. But what I ultimately argue in the book is that we'd all be wise to pay attention to working class variants of environmentalism. Um, you know, it's easy to say we should preserve all our forests, and it's easy to say we should, you know, and this is an argument that I think extends beyond the Northwest. It's easy to say we should preserve all resources that we, we rely on. But what I always tell people is stop for a moment and think about how much lumber surrounds you. Your house is made of lumber. The building where you work may be made of lumber. My desk is made of lumber. You can see the background. You know, pretty much I'm looking at all your backgrounds and probably seeing lumber, right? Lumber is still a part of our everyday life. And no real good alternatives exist to lumber as a building material. There are all are alternatives, but some of those are really bad for the environment. Um, so what I always tell people is, you know, it's too easy to say we simply have to preserve natural resources. The trickier question and the question that timber workers have been asking themselves for over a century is how do we, you know, maintain biodiversity? How do we maintain outdoor recreational spaces? How do we maintain wildlife habitat? And how do we provide a crucial resource that the economy relies on? And by listening to how they answer those questions, we may have ways forward that um, avoid some of the vitriolic conflicts that have shaped land use management and land use politics in the Northwest, if not throughout all of North America. So, so that's the general kind of gist of, of the book. So Steve, that was really great and a great encapsulation of <laughs> what a lot of people think of when they think of timber workers. Mm -hmm. um, and because I live in the Pacific Northwest, I know, as you know, that we still see the repercussions from the lumber industry not failing necessarily, but being re readily diminished since mm -hmm. the spotted owl times. You mentioned that a lot of people's perceptions of timber workers were that they were from a bygone era and that the industry had moved on. And I wonder if there's an analogy to what we're seeing today with coal miners and coal workers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, when I was writing this book, uh, I mean, not entirely, but part of the moment I was working on this book was the 2016 presidential election. And who among us can forget the, the coal miners holding the signs that says uh, Trump digs coal? Um, so, yeah, I definitely think there's parallels to be drawn between timber workers and, and other workers in other resource extraction industries, workers who are in industries that are 
no, I don't want to say bygone because timber by no stretch, nor is coal bygone, but industries that are a kind of fraction or they employ a fraction of the people they once did. And that's in transition, you might say, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you know, one of the things I wanted to avoid, though, in, in the book was, you know, a lot of the narrative, especially about coal miners, is that same narrative of like, oh, they're clinging on to this this old kind of way of, of doing things. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thing I want to get away from is that, or I want to get away from that narrative. It just seemed too simplistic to me. It doesn't account for a host of other factors. I mean, so one of the big things I talk about in my book is that what was disappearing and what people were fighting for as much as their jobs was community. Um, so you, again, you know, being from Southwest Washington, these, these rural logging towns, they are phenomenal places. They are great places where you have tight-knit communities where everyone, you know, pretty much every working age male worked at the same sawmill, um, their company picnics or the union picnics on the weekends, everyone attended. If someone didn't work in the sawmill, then they were either married to someone who was, or they worked in an industry that was reliant on, you know, spending of sawmill workers. And what was happening as the industry went into decline is that, yes, people were losing their jobs, but there were also these communities, these really tight-knit communities were being completely upended. Um, and so that is what people are holding on to as much as their jobs. Um, the other thing with, with timber workers too, um, what they were trying to fight for was a kind of multi-use. And so this is where maybe some of the, the comparisons to coal doesn't hold up because the ecological dynamics of coal and timber are a little bit different. But you know, timber workers said too, um, and the book takes, takes this argument seriously is that can logging be bad for the environment? No question. Um, but logging isn't necessarily bad for the environment. What, what timber workers were saying was, you know, if we do logging responsibly and we do it considerably and we, we work in partnership with land management agencies, we can actually have healthier forests than if they were unlogged. And that kind of got lost too. So, so the, the comparisons to coal aren't exactly the same, but yeah, this whole idea, and again, I think, um, this whole idea about kind of people being stuck in the past is part of a broader narrative. So one of the things I didn't talk about when I was describing my book was that there's also a cultural history element to this book. Uh, the title Strong Winds and Widowmakers actually comes from a country song uh, by a man named Buzz Martin, who was popular in, in Oregon and Washington. He was kind of a, I kind of call him Oregon's Merle Haggard. Um, one of the things I talk about is how even before the Spotted Owl conflicts came to a head, there were these new cultural divides that emerged in the Pacific Northwest that started pitting rural and urban folks against one another. Um, and at least here in the Northwest, one of the things I spend a lot of time talking about is a book like Ken Casey's Sometimes a Great Notion, right? And one of the, the central ideas in Sometimes a Great Notion is that the stampers are behind the times, that they, they are kind of stuck in a nostalgic past. So that narrative about coal miners or timber workers or insert any resource rural extraction worker being stuck in the past is as much a cultural product as it is a political product. And so I think to really understand the ways in which we sometimes regard workers and their politics, we have to interrogate cultural history as much as we do social and political history. Let's go to Judy and Chris. Yeah. Well, we probably have different questions. So you go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say your book sounds like just what the labor movement needs to break down these prejudices between workers close to the land and 
uh, you know, the the concept that uh, that they're backward. Because mm. I'll give another example in Missouri. If you talk to a lot of farmers, they they um, don't like the corporate style of farming. And, and to show that fact, a lot of the farmers uh, have their own gardens free from the pesticides that they're given to put on the crop because they have no choice uh, because of the way the corporate uh, business is. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things um, I, I think you find when you start going to rural communities, when you don't just rely on what other people have written about them, I you actually start going and talking to these folks yourself. Uh, is you find that the kind of nice, neat left-right dichotomy that the media and a lot of academics rely on really starts to break down uh, in many rural communities. So that's the same thing, you know, here in rural Oregon, right? So I'm in Eugene, very liberal college town, but you go to neighboring Springfield or you just drive 10 or 15 minutes outside of Eugene, you're going to see a lot of Trump signs. You're going to see a lot of... Um, uh, you know, back the blue anti-Black Lives Matter signs, and those things are very upsetting and disconcerting, and I don't like them. Uh, on the other hand, you start talking to these folks, you find out they don't like Weyerhaeuser, and Weyerhaeuser is the, the biggest landowner in the Pacific Northwest, and definitely here in Oregon. They don't like a lot of these big timber companies. Um, they don't like urban environmentalists. I usually save the fact that I'm from Eugene for a while until I get to know them. Um, but yeah, the you find some commonalities between the progressive left and the rural far right once you start talking to these people. I'm not saying there's a, you know, again, they're still voting for Trump and, you know, the progressive people in Portland and Eugene necessarily aren't. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, I, I think when you go to rural America, you realize there's a lot more complexity than the Washington Post or the New York Times often captures in their, their reporting. So this is real interesting, um, and uh, thank you for being on. Uh, you know, uh, oh gosh, a couple of years ago, I listened to that podcast called Timber Wars. Mm -hmm. Did you have anything to do with that? I didn't, no. And actually, I mean, it was a good podcast. There, of course, you know, I'm going to quibble with some things, um, but they didn't actually talk to any historians. And right, so mine's a, a new book about the Northwest timber industry, but there's a lot of others, you know, like any historian I'm building on, subsequent yeah. scholars work and that kind of I thought was a little like odd that they didn't consult any historians oh, um and I'm not saying they had I to know. consult me but it was Oregon Public Broadcasting and I'm at University of Oregon or at Oregon State University is another historian really regarded historian named Bill Robbins uh mm -hmm. who's kind of like the godfather of uh, forest history. Um, so yeah, it just seems strange to me that they didn't incorporate any any historians. But it was still quite interesting. I have oh, to... I thought it was too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, my question is this: You, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your talk how you know, like the dichotomy between the environmentalists and and the workers was was created, and I'm curious about who was doing that creating and who benefited from creating it? You know, was it Weyerhaeuser? Was it the media? Um, because we see that re reduplicated, not just in West Virginia and the coal industry, but we saw, you know, we saw it in, um, in factories and, you know, like industry as well across the United States through, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. And, you know, we have the Blue Green Alliance, which is kind of, I don't even know if it still exists, trying to overcome that and bring Sierra Club and, 
you know, labor steel workers together. But, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it diffused that belief among people that in fact, there is this conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, what did you learn about who was pushing that? Yeah, Judy, thank you. That is a phenomenal question. Um, and it's a question that the book spends considerable time dealing with. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned before, I put part of the blame on culture, new cultural products that convince people living in cities that people living in rural communities don't have their interest in mind and vice versa. That Buzz Martin song I talked about, right? Buzz Martin, like I said, is the Merle Haggard of the Northwest. And he kind of fuels some division. He tells rural people, hey, your enemies are the affluent elite over in the cities, right? So, so the culture of both sides was, was partly to blame. Um, the other big thing I point to, though, is the changing demographics of the, the changing both politics and demographics of the environmental movement. So in the 1950s and 60s, when the environmental movement and organized labor were working hand in hand, and this is true not just in the Northwest woods, you know, you go to a lot of other places, you go to coal country, you go to kind of some of the manufacturing on the East Coast, and you see organized labor and, you know, what was then called the wilderness movement, you know, there was really no environmental movement yet, but you see wilderness activists or conservationists and workers working hand in hand, they both have the same interests. Now, at least for groups like the Wilderness Society, who was at the forefront of pressing for the Wilderness Act and wilderness expansion in the Northwest, a lot of those folks, they came from rural communities themselves. So Howard Zonizer, who is the president of the Wilderness Society in the 1950s, and he's kind of the, the architect of the 1964 Wilderness Act, he came from Pennsylvania coal country. So, you know, I think he knew, since he had grown up around these folks, he knew that rural workers weren't his enemy. He knew that these guys cared as much for the land as he did. Um, also, there's a lot of folks in the Wilderness Society who come from the Forest Service, and they're oftentimes, although Leopold, famous forester, right? Um, and so while they have criticisms of the industry, they also realize that workers share their ideas. But what happens in the 1960s is there's a big demographic shift in the environmental movement is that, you know, for a host of reasons, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring being one of them, we start to see environmentalists coming more from urban areas. Um, so these, unlike Howard Zonizer or Aldo Leopold, these are folks who really don't know timber workers or they really haven't met timber workers. Um, so they really, the only thing they know about timber workers are what comes from the media. And this is where popular culture becomes important. You know, one of the things I say in the book is that most environmentalists by the 1970s were very unlikely to know a real timber worker, but they certainly knew the stampers from sometimes a great notion. And since Ken Casey's view of workers was quite disparaging, then they kind of adopted that as their own. So environmentalists, urban environmentalists come to see timber workers as their kind of existential enemies and workers start doing the same. So it's a combination of, of culture and changing demographics. And I, you know, I think the same thing happens in coal country, right? Is that once you start getting environmentalists coming more from urban areas, they really don't know and interact with, with people from coal country and what they think they know about workers or rural workers, especially comes less from personal interaction and a lot more from the media and popular culture. So. Well, what about the corporations and the, and the, uh, also the trend toward monopolization 
of resource extractors yeah. that was going on at the same time. Yeah, so here's, I think, a case where Northwest forests differ from potentially other resource extraction economies like coal in West Virginia, um, is that what happens in the Northwest is that, yes, you do get land consolidation and monopolization, but that, I mean, that starts in the 1900s. That's kind of the subject of the first chapter of the book. Um, but what happens starting around the 1970s is you get a decline in private forestry and actually private landholders, they actually kind of switch their corporate strategy and become essentially real estate investment firms. Uh, Weyerhaeuser today makes more money from real estate investment than it does logging. That's not to say it doesn't log, it's just, it's a real estate management company essentially. And what happens is the harvest shifts to public lands. And as far as I, I mean, right, you have some mining on BLM lands, but as far as I know, there's no equivalent, at least in kind of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, of public lands mining like there is in the Northwest, but or Northwest forestry, but essentially the, the harvest shifts to public lands. So even though there is land monopolization, and even though in the 70s, corporations are kind of cutting back on their logging operations, uh, public forestry starts emerge, fills that gap. So if you kind of look at the, the trend lines, um, you know, you see what happens in the 70s is private forestry or private forest harvest go down at the same time forest service and BLM land harvests start going up. And this, you know, I talk about this in the book too, this shifts some of the... Aren't um, there corporations who are doing that harvesting though? So that's the thing is harvesting looked very different on uh, forest service land. It was instead done by a lot of independent contractors. Um, and again, as far as I know, there's really no equivalent in coal mining. Um, but these were commonly called GIPOs. Uh, I mean, the, the correct name is independent contract loggers. And independent contract loggers, essentially, th this is one of the things that actually complicates the landscape of class. By the 1970s and 80s, you no longer have a clear working class and a clear employing class in the woods. What you have are these independent contract loggers. They're crews of you know anywhere from five to 20 guys. Uh, the boss owns the company, but he really doesn't make much more than his employees. He's out there working with his employees, getting just as dirty and tired and hurt as his employees. Um, so you really have those corporations. Now, they're often selling their lumber to corporate mills. And so the corporate, corporate mills sometimes have some control over them. Um, but that was actually one of the interesting things. Um, and I think that's one of the things that also shapes a lot of environmental conflict uh, is that the, the class dynamics really change in the later 20th century. So you don't get these, it, it, you can't go to the woods today and find, you know, in some places you can, but most places, the lines demarcating capital and labor are no longer as clear as they, they once were. It's, it's been somewhat covered, but I wanted to ask in this way, um, the working class environmentalist really seems familiar to me um, in Colorado with coal miners, our Craig power plant. It's in a rural area, very beautiful. These people hunt and fish and hike and ski and, you know, uh, very, you know, much more connected to the environment than, than I am. Um, what I want to know is that are, are, are the working class environmentalists and these sort of affluent elite environmentalists, are they currently farther apart than they've ever been or closer? Like, and is, has there been anything that's brought them together in a positive way? And we do have the Blue-Green Alliance working here. We do have a lot of that going on, but just sort of talking about some of that, like, do they ever work together? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of one of those one step forward, two step back situation, right? Um, so right, there are these kind of hopeful moments that you see, you know, the famous hopeful moment in recent history was the 1999 WTO protests, right? Is that you had Teamsters and environmentalists all organizing together, but then afterwards there were divisions, right? And so, yeah, we have new kind of blue-green alliances. The AFL-CIO is oftentimes trying to, you know, start new caucuses or new organizations meant to partner with, with you know, environmental groups. Uh, and you see the same thing with environmental groups is they're, they're making outreaches to workers and things like that. But it seems like for every step forward, then there's, there's two steps back, right? So, you know, here in the Northwest, um, the, the big thing in recent memory, uh, not just recent memory, it's kind of ongoing right now, is that um, there were the emergence of these really promising uh, entities called cooperative land use partnerships. And essentially the way these worked was you would get loggers, environmentalists, federal land managers, everyone sit down at the table and they would work out management plans. Like we're going to harvest X amount of timber from this forest. We're not going to preserve this forest. And again, this is not to say that environmentalists and, and workers were all of a sudden becoming friends, but they were sitting down, they were talking about their problems, they were, they were coming to agreed upon solutions that avoided some of the kind of lawsuits and litigation, things that had been really disruptive you know, in the 1980s and 1990s. So you started seeing these cooperative land use partnerships kind of pop up throughout the Northwest, not just in the Northwest, I think there's some in Colorado as well. But then at least what happens in Oregon is in 2018, don't quote me on the year, I'd have to double check, the legislature introduced a new climate change bill that would have severely impacted fuel costs for independent contract loggers. And that created a very contentious political landscape, and it led to the emergence of this new group called Timber Unity. Uh, I don't know. I know Timber Unity is big in Oregon. I think they're starting to kind of reach into the Washington Herald. I don't know. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Timber Unity. Uh, yeah, they're here. They're, yeah, they're here. And you yeah. guys may remember the uh, Canadian truckers strike. Uh, there's a connection there as well to Timber Unity in the Northwest. Oh yeah, yeah. So right, the Canadian. When I heard the, about the Canadian trucker strike, I'm like, oh, I've happening here too, right? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where we have these cooperative land use partnerships popping up, but then we get this other kind of new conflict over climate change legislation and fuel costs. Um, so I mean, the the problem is not problem. The reality is, um, and this is true, I think, in the Northwest as it is everywhere, right? Is that environmentalists don't speak with one voice, nor do workers speak with one voice. So while there are some workers and some environmentalists who are like they want to commit to these cooperative land use partnerships or other models of decision making that will allow for both, you know, economically healthy rural communities and ecologically healthy forests, there are folks like some of the timber unity folks who are less interested in compromise. And, uh, you know, kind of one of the, the groups of bad guys in my book are some of the radical environmentalists. Um, and you still see some radical environmentalism here in Oregon and Washington that, again, is doing more to drive a wedge between workers and environmentalists than it is doing anything productive. So, yeah, environmentalism, labor, as we all know, these are complex constituencies where, where no one has ever spoken with a singular voice. Really appreciate your time today, Steve. It's clearly about so much more than just word. And I think you brought a really 
fascinating new perspective on this subject. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful meeting everyone. reached the end of this week's Labour History Today. The music you've been listening to is Bread and Roses by the R.J. Phillips Band. The Bread and Roses strike began on January 11th, 1912, also known as the Lawrence Textile Strike. It was a strike of immigrant workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, led by the industrial workers of the world. IWW leaders Bill Hayward and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn came to Lawrence to run the strike. Together they masterminded its signature move, sending hundreds of the strikers' hungry children to sympathetic families in New York, New Jersey and Vermont. The move drew widespread sympathy, especially after police stopped a further exodus, leading to violence at the Lawrence train station. Congressional hearings followed, resulting in exposure of shocking conditions in the Lawrence mills and calls for investigation of the Will Trust. Mill owners soon decided to settle the strike giving workers in Lawrence and throughout New England raises of up to 20%. Within a year, however, the IWW had largely collapsed in Lawrence. I've got a link to the video by the RJ Phillips Band commemorating the event in the show notes. You can subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app, and if you like it, please feel free to leave a review and repost this or any other episode on social media. Labour History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labour and the Working Poor. The team includes Ben Blake, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Polzak and Alan Weirdak. This show was produced by Chris Garlock and hosted by Patrick Dixon. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you again next week. My march it was over